0: I knew this was gonna be a special day. You know, if I seem a little bit chipper, more chipper than normal, it's because we have a special treat for you today. We have a special guest preacher uh, today. Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill is here. And for many of us, he needs no introduction. Um, you've, You've known him through his books and he's also been here repeatedly, and it's such an honor to have him back with us again. I, I think of him kind of somewhat presumptuously, I think, as one of our at-large pastors. Uh, West Hill is quickly becoming a friend to many of us as well. But Wes Hill is a professor of New Testament theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's also an Episcopal priest, lectures around the world, and as I say, he's an author, so you might have read Washed and Waiting, uh, the first book of his that I read, Paul and the Trinity, New Testament scholar, uh, Spiritual Friendship. And, you know, the first time I read one of your books, Wes, I was reading with UPCers, a small group of young adults who were reading this book, Washed and Waiting, together, and it resonated with all of us deeply. You found words to describe uh, the deep kind of loneliness that I think many of us experience today, and that drew us in, and then we were so uh, delighted by your gracious, joyful witness to Jesus in the context of that loneliness. I knew I was hooked, and so were all of us. Uh, and I wanted just to share briefly why I think this is so important for us in the context of the series that we're in right now. So if you're just visiting us, we've been in a multi-week series about Elijah in First Kings 19 called fried, like the egg, fried, pursuing mental and emotional wholeness because many of us are living or trying to live right here in this place of fried. Elijah is the guy who leaves Israel, lies down under a broom tree, and just, just, just says, take my life. And the, so the question is, what does the Lord do To restore him to wholeness, physical, emotional, spiritual wholeness. This is what we've been studying. One of the things the Lord does is he gives him spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship. You know, not just buddies, but a friendship rooted in the grace of God. A fullness and a depth to the friendship. And and he does that. Last we met him, last week, if you're following, uh, he was on Mount Sinai in the cave in the you know, the the wind and the fire, the earthquake, and then he hears from the Lord. And uh, one of the things the Lord says to him is, I want you to go anoint another man as your successor to be a prophet. And that man's name is rather similarly, Elisha. So Elijah goes to find Elisha. And now they have, for a season, this overlap and, and a friendship that is rooted in the grace of God. And so... You know, you, you, could, you, you couldn't do better than to leave this place today better equipped to enter into spiritual friendship yourself as a strategy for, for refreshing and renewing your life. So, with that, can we give Wessel a warm UPC welcome? I know you'll be blessed. Yeah, blessed. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Thank you. Well, good morning, UPC. It's uh, a great Joy and honor for me to be back here. I think this is my fourth or fifth time uh, coming back. I, I uh, have come to feel that this is a second family to me, and it's uh, it's a real privilege and honor and a joy for me to be with you this morning. I want to read our our text for this morning from 1 Kings, and after I read it, I'll announce that this is God's word to us, and I would invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. So this is a reading from the first book of Kings. So Elijah set out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. The word of the Lord. Be to Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, as George just mentioned, we come to this scene of friendship today in our study of 1 Kings. Elijah has been a prophet, he's been the bearer of God's word to the people, but he's faced setbacks, he's faced discouragement and despair, and one of the ways that God meets him in that moment is bringing Elisha into his life. And Elisha ends up leaving behind his former life and following Elijah, and they form this this bond, this connection, this shared partnership and companionship. In ministry. And this is one of the ways that the Lord provides for Elijah and gives him encouragement. And we see this kind of thing over and over again in the Bible. It's not just a one off, isolated incident. We see other instances of friendship, the Lord bringing people together, giving people to one another to be companions. Think about the story in the Old Testament of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi becomes a widow. She loses her husband, and she decides to go back uh, to the land of Israel. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's also lost her husband, says to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. It's a kind of, it almost sounds like a marriage commitment. You know, she wants to uh, bind herself in friendship to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they become companions. And Ruth journeys with Naomi. We see it Also, in one of Ruth's great-great-grandsons, the the king of Israel, the greatest king, David. David forms a spiritual bond, a friendship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And if you remember those very moving words, Jonathan pledges himself to be David's friend in the way. It's a beautiful picture of what uh, a committed, loyal companionship can be. But it isn't just in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we see pairs of friends. Think about Paul and Timothy. Think about the example of Jesus, which we'll see more in a moment. Jesus had many large crowds following him, but he he also enjoyed a special intimacy with Peter. James and John. They were with him there on the mountain when he was transfigured. They were with him there in the garden when he was in agony before he was arrested and crucified. He had close friends. John was known as the beloved disciple. So all through the Bible, we see this this practice, this habit of friendship as something that's commended to us. But my guess this morning is that A lot of you, like me, you can see that and you can be inspired by it, but you feel like it doesn't quite match the life that you're living. You're not quite sure you have those kind of relationships in your life. And you want them, you're hungry for them, you have prayed for them, but you're not quite sure how to get it. My suspicion is a lot of us are in that place this morning, and we're not alone. The statistics on friendship in our country are kind of alarming. In 1990, 3% of Americans said that they did not have a close friend. By the year 2021, it was up to 12%. Friends, that's a 300% increase in the number of Americans who say, we don't have friends we can rely on in just three decades we're all aware uh, it was mentioned earlier we've just come through a season of profound isolation we've had to do this to try to care for each other but it's been lonely and many of us have fallen out of the habit of knowing how to cultivate friendships uh, one of the things that researchers have studied is that it's kind of a double-edged sword i mean on the one hand we needed to isolate so as to prevent the spread of the covid virus but as we do that our brains actually register our loneliness as a threat to us. And so the, the, the hormonal changes in our bodies can actually have an adverse effect on our health, even while we're trying to isolate to remain healthy. So there have been costs to these lockdowns. And many of us are stumbling around trying to figure out what does friendship look like now in the wake of this? I read one study uh, done by the group Cigna that said, actually, as you look at uh, the generations of Americans, the, the baby boomer generation is actually in many ways the least lonely, and it's the younger generations that report the highest levels of loneliness in our culture right now. The Cigna group said that among Gen Z, the younger you are, the lonelier you are likely to feel. It's very sobering and concerning, I think. The Survey Center on American Life reports that American men are in what they call a friendship recession. Adult, white, heterosexual men have the fewest friends of any group in American society. If a man does have a close confidant, Friend, Three-quarters of the time, it's a woman, and often that person is his wife or girlfriend, which is not a problem, but we want our men to have other male friendships as well. Interestingly, when men are asked in surveys what they want in friendship, they honestly say, I want intimacy. I want to be known. I want to know another person deeply, be in their life, care for them, be cared for. What are the reasons for this friendship recession that we seem to be in? Probably a lot of different factors we could point to. One of them is fewer and fewer of us in this country are attending religious services like this. This is a prime place to meet people, to befriend people. I hope that many of you will stick around after the service for the coffee hour and just chat. Maybe chat with someone you don't know. This is a great way to meet potential friends. But, a, but fewer and fewer of us in this country are taking advantage of that. Marriage rates are declining, and traditionally, marriage is one of those relationships that becomes a springboard for developing friendships. You, know, you can invite other people into your into your family life and and get to know your neighbors. Another factor, of course, is changes in workplace habits. More and more of us are not going into the office. We're not having those regular, unplanned interactions with each other, which can become the kind of Uh, springboard for friendship. You know, you go from a casual conversation at lunch to uh, a a deeper relationship, and we don't have that opportunity, a lot of us. So we're in this period of struggle, I think, as a culture with friendship. One of the people that I've looked to for wisdom on this is a, a theologian in Australia named Benjamin Myers. And what he's done in some of his work is he's looked at some of the beliefs that we tend to have about the way the world works, uh, the pictures we have in our minds of, of how life goes. And he says that some of these pictures are, are myths. They're, they're fictional beliefs that actually work against our developing friendships. He points out that one of the myths that a lot of us tend to believe is that somehow, secretly, deep down, if you have a close relationship with someone else, it must ultimately be about romantic or sexual attraction. And if you, if you harbor that idea, it might actually make you nervous about being friends, because you don't want other people to think, you know, there's something going on here. If we don't have a category in our minds for close, intimate, loyal, non-romantic, non-sexual companionship, if that just doesn't exist in our imagination, That may hinder us from looking for deeper friendships. Some of you will know the name uh, Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch was an editor at Christianity Today. He's written a number of wonderful books. Um, And he wrote this a few years ago in Christianity Today magazine about his experience of feeling like some of his friendships are kind of under the microscope a bit, under suspicion, and how that makes him a little, you know, unsettled. He says, I've been blessed with a few friends. They've heard my confessions and pronounced my sins covered and forgotten. They've laid their hands on my shoulders and prayed for me in my darkest moments of doubt. No one has many friends like this, but I have just enough, barely enough, I would say. Several of these friends live in far-flung cities, and when travel takes me there, we seize the opportunity to enjoy one another's company. Often, we make time for a long dinner at a nice restaurant. And over 20 years of friendship with these men, we've become accustomed to knowing glances from our servers and fellow diners. They see us laughing unrestrainedly, talking deeply, listening intently, and with reactions of enthusiastic approval or mild discomfort, they let us know quite clearly, once in a while in so many words, what they think they know. And what they think they know is that we must be gay. In the cities where I live and travel, a display of open, honest love and affection between two men is linked, it seems, with the assumption that those two men must be romantically involved, or at least attracted to each other. Today, in our culture, intimacy means sex, and sex means love. And then he says, our age has almost forgotten a love between brothers that is more than awkward slaps on the back, growing and duding our way through performances of emphatically non-homoerotic masculinity. (laughs) What he's getting at there is, when you only have a category for intimacy means romance, or there's no intimacy, you leave out the possibility of a non-romantic, non-sexual, yet deeply intimate friendship. Another myth that works against us is the myth that the only relationships that really matter in life are family, biological family, or marriage, child rearing. All these things are great. They're good gifts of God. But for so many of us, if push comes to shove, we would say, well, friends are nice, but I can take them or leave them. It's my family that really matters. And when we, when we have that kind of focus, we can miss out on all the ways that friendship is not simply optional, it's one of God's good gifts to us. It's one of the ways that God wants to take us deeper into His love. Thirdly, Meyer says a lot of us buy into the myth of work, the myth that the way we matter in the world is when we're being productive. And if that's what we think, that the only way to kind of make a difference in the world, the way to shore up our identity is to be productive, well, you can see how friendship would, would kind of get put on the back burner because friendship is not productive. There's no obvious, you know, thing that is produced by it that I can point to and say, see, we, we did this thing. It, friendship is simply the enjoyment of being together, of talking, of exploring ideas together, of, of enjoying one another's company learning more about each other, enjoying some hobby together. It's not, it's not productive in the way that work is productive. And so if we have this mindset that the only way we, we count in the world, the only way we matter in life is if we're generating new things, well, then we may not value friendship very much. Friends, in all these ways, I think our culture, our beliefs, our, our, our ideas, they can make it hard for us to prioritize this. In our lives. So what do we do about that? How do we move forward, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus? Well, I want to introduce you to uh, uh, a person from church history this morning. Uh, His name, a bit of an odd name to us modern people, his name is Aelred, which is spelled A-E-L-R-E-D. And he lived in the 12th century in England. Uh, His father was a priest, and uh, he grew up and sort of left home. He moved up to Scotland, and he became a steward in the court of the Scottish king there. And he sort of abandoned uh, his, his father's faith. He, he lived kind of promiscuously, you know, not very interested in God uh, for a long time, and uh, sort of enjoyed the, the prestige that comes from being in the, in the king's palace. And eventually, God got a hold of him. And he gave his life to the church, he got ordained, he became a priest, and eventually he became the abbot, which is like the kind of senior leader or organizer of a monastery in the north of England, uh, in in the Yorkshire area, called Revo, Revo Abbey. Uh, It's actually still there. Uh, You can go and visit it. I, I lived in England a few years ago, and I made it a point to kind of go on a pilgrimage to this abbey, which is a bit uh, dilapidated now. It's, it's, it, the roof is gone, and, but you can still see how beautiful it would have been in its day. You, you kind of come up over these beautiful rolling green hills, and kind of right there in the middle of this, this field is this, this wonderful stone church structure, uh, and the cells that the monks would have lived in around it. And I remember uh, walking into one of these uh, enclosures, And uh, bowing my head and closing my eyes and praying and thanking God for the witness of this priest, this, this Christian leader in the 12th century. And the reason I did that is because Aylred is one of the only Christians throughout the whole history of the church that has written a book specifically on friendship. It's called Spiritual Friendship. You can still get it, it's in print, it's been translated into modern English. Um, There are several different uh, editions of it on Amazon. I'd encourage you to read it. It's short. And Elred says specifically he wanted to encourage Christians to care about this love of friendship, to make it a priority in their lives. Here's how he defines friendship. He first of all says he wants to distinguish spiritual friendship or Christian friendship from counterfeit versions of it. We're probably all familiar with uh, relationships that we have that we thought were the real thing. We thought they were genuinely friendship, and they turned out to be disappointing. Elred was very aware of that. He said he doesn't want to promote what he called carnal friendships. These are the friendships that you form with people who enjoy the same vices and bad habits that you do. Anybody identify? Uh, think about the friends you might make in college, for example. You enjoy the same parties. You enjoy uh, the same uh, bad habits. And it, you, you, you go on in these relationships for a while, and you realize there's actually not much that's holding you together aside from your shared pleasure in this thing that's actually hurting you, this thing that's actually going to disappoint you in the end. And Aylred says, that kind of looks like friendship, but it's a shadow of the real thing. He says there are other kind of relationships that we might call worldly friendships. These are the kind of relationships you form with people who have the same ambitions or career goals that you do. And again, those can be meaningful. They can can look really significant. You're both climbing the ladder. You're kind of spurring each other on competitively. But at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot that's holding you together aside from this kind of prideful ambition to succeed in worldly terms. And Aylred recommends instead that we pursue, those of us who know Jesus, that we pursue what he calls spiritual friendship. Not carnal friendships, not worldly friendships, but spiritual friendships. And this is how he defines it. He says a spiritual friendship is a relationship of mutual goodwill and charity, or we might say love, marked by trust and fidelity. Relationships of mutual goodwill and charity, marked by trust and fidelity. I just want to try to unpack those words for the next few minutes for you. Let's think first about that idea of mutual goodwill. When I'm pursuing a spiritual friendship with you, I want you to flourish. I care about your wellness, and you care about mine. It's a mutual thing. Friendship is marked by that mutual concern for each other's growth in in the love of God and love of neighbor. You can't do that with everyone. You can't have those kind of deep relationships with everyone. We're called to love everyone, but we can't devote that kind of attention to every single person. And so, Aylward says we learn to love, we learn about mutuality in the context of a handful of relationships in our lives. He says that these friendships should be marked by charity. Now, that's a that's a really big, deep word for him. Charity is what Jesus shows us in giving up his life selflessly on the cross for us. Aylred says the right kind of friendship between us should begin in Christ, be maintained according to Christ, and have its goal and value referred to Christ. And he says that when you when you start to cultivate those kind of friendships, it actually becomes a school that is training you to love others outside the friendship circle in that same way. Friendship is not about simply withdrawing with the people that you like and avoiding the people you don't like. It's it's actually in friendship that you learn the kind of charity that you can then go and extend to others who may not be your friends. Thirdly, he says, spiritual friendship is marked by trust. He says that your friend is someone that you can risk sharing your secrets with. Interestingly, this is one of those places where secular researchers have discovered uh, that the best psychological science tells us the same thing. If you want a deeper relationship with someone, take the risk of sharing something you wouldn't share with just anyone. And oftentimes, that will become an open door for a deeper relationship. That will become a kind of bond that leads you into a deeper friendship. I would really love to believe that the church is a great place to practice that kind of relationship, where you might take the risk of sharing something that maybe you haven't been able to share with other friends. You're not sure how, they're, how they'll react. You're not sure if you'll still be accepted. In the body of Christ, we can confess our our weaknesses to one another. We can care for each other, even in those tender places that we wouldn't expose publicly. That could be a way for you in your life to pursue a deeper friendship. And then finally, Aylred says, spiritual friendship should be marked by fidelity, should be marked by faithfulness. I love these words from his book. He says, though challenged, though injured, though tossed into the flames— though nailed to a cross, a friend loves always. A friend loves always. It's interesting. He says that even if your friend ends up breaking your trust, you share a secret with them that you didn't want anyone else to know, and they end up failing you by telling someone else. He says, even in that moment, you may not be able to fully trust them going forward, but you still remain faithful to them. You still love them. You still pray for their well-being. You still hope for their flourishing. Friends, if you, like me, this morning, are longing for those kind of relationships, if you want this church to be a place where those kind of relationships thrive and are encouraged, how do we do that? How can we pursue them? I want to leave you with two thoughts, friends, this morning. I want to encourage you to take Jesus as God's gift of friendship to you. Receive Jesus as God's gift of friendship. And secondly, look to Jesus' example of friendship as you seek to nurture your own. Let's take the first point first. Look to Jesus as God's gift of friendship to you on the night that he was arrested and uh, taken into custody, before that, he shared a final meal with his disciples. And this is, these are some of the words that he said to them from the Gospel of John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last So that the Father will give you whatever you ask Him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. I think that's an absolutely remarkable passage about the good news that we are here celebrating this morning, which is that God has come to us and called us not merely subjects, not merely those who are asked to submit to His Lordship, but those who are friends. Jesus died and gave his life not merely to subordinate us, but to draw us into an intimacy with himself and through him with God the Father. He says, I'm not speaking to you just as a master would speak to a subordinate. I'm not speaking to you as a parent would speak to a child. I'm speaking to you as a confidant. I'm taking you into my confidence. I'm sharing the Father's heart with you. And he found us when we were at our absolute worst, when we weren't prepared for that, when we were not ready to choose him. He came and gave his life for us and rose from the dead to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another so that we might have an entirely new way of being with one another and being with him. That's the gift of friendship that he brings, the gift of friendship with God. But secondly, he leaves us his example to follow. He himself was a friend. He himself had an intimate circle of friends, and we can begin to pattern our lives after him. One of the people that I've looked to for for guidance here is uh, a writer named John Henry Newman from the 19th century. He was uh, an Anglican priest and eventually entered the Roman Catholic Church, but he preached a sermon on friendship. And I just want to read you a couple sentences from it about the example of friendship in Jesus. Newman says, I here maintain with our Savior's pattern in front of me, our Savior's example before me, that the best preparation for loving the world at large and loving it duly and wisely is to cultivate an intimate friendship and affection towards those who are immediately around us. I think that's remarkable. He says, if you want to be the kind of people who love like Jesus loved, who stretched out his arms on the cross for the whole world, start small. Start with the people that are immediately around you. Start with your next door neighbor. And what you'll find is that As you begin small, your heart is enlarged and your your posture is tilted toward the whole human family. It's that cultivating of friendship that actually shapes us and prepares us to love the way Jesus loved for the whole world. So, friends, I want to encourage you this morning to think small. And I want to leave you with a, a very specific challenge. I want to invite you after the service to just pull out your phone. And scroll through the names of your contacts. And see see that friend that maybe you haven't been in touch with for several months. Maybe you haven't seen them since before the lockdown. And you have good memories. You remember uh, the friendship you enjoyed. And just drop them a text. And say, hey, I saw your name, thinking about you, praying for you. Would love to grab coffee or catch up sometime. And see what happens. Start small. Start, as Newman says, with those who are intimately about you, and you will find, please God, that as as we give ourselves to those relationships of mutual goodwill, with trust and fidelity, that it becomes a kind of school for us in learning to love outside the boundaries of our families, outside the walls of the church, so that our hearts may be enlarged, so that we reach out to the whole world, Friends, to God be the glory, now and forever. Amen.